it's such a privilege to know Priscilla Lawrence, and it's such a privilege to know this institution. I use it as a model for when the newsletter comes in and I see the program, I cannot believe what the staff does. I cannot believe what leadership promotes. And in every possible strata of visitors and residents of New Orleans, your programs are a model. They transcend gender, class, race, interest. There is something for everybody. And The 
Delron Plantation served as the headquarters for the British command during the Battle of New Orleans. You may recall the pair of French candlesticks with Egyptian decoration in your forum invitation. Those candlesticks bear the ownership marks of Delron and were made between 1803 and 1819 in Paris. John Law, who lived from 1671 to 1729, was born in Edinburgh, Scotland. He was the originator of the Mississippi Scheme for the development of French territories in America. Our founder, General Kemper Williams, had a particular interest in the subject of John Law and his get-rich-quick schemes. The materials that the general assembled are significant and have held recently the collection's holdings compared favorably to other U.S. repositories, such as Duke, the University of Chicago, Yale, the Newberry Library, and the University of Minnesota. In the summer of 2010, however, through contacts in France, we acquired an exceptional and unique collection concerning the monetary system of law and the foundation of the Company La Louisiane. The collection consists of 228 imprints, two bound volumes, five posters, and three manuscripts. The items range in date from 1707 to 1734 and cover the last years of Louis XIV, the Regency and early years of Louis XV's reign, the development of John Law's system and the eventual bankruptcy and its consequences. The material includes this document, the manuscript letters patent granting to John Law and his company the privilege to establish a general bank, and it's dated May 2nd, 1716. It's signed by Louis XV, then age six, by the regent, the Duke d'Orléans, and by Louis Philippe. Although multiple manuscript copies of this document were created, this is the only copy known to survive. The additional material consists mostly of imprints and bound volumes, including the Royal Act establishing the lottery and a stock certificate in the bank, as well as the first French edition, published 1720, of John Law's work, Money and Trade Considered, first published in Edinburgh, in 1705. This very re recent acquisition may well be the definitive John Law collection. No similar one is known to exist in a public repository in the United States or Europe. This miniature painting is a watercolor on ivory set in a gold case. According to the inscription on the back, Catherine Renier Dutimat was painted by her husband John Bacquier in 1830, the year of their marriage. Catherine was born in Saint-Domingue and immigrated to Louisiana, where she died in 1858. The case was clearly made or engraved after her death. Our curators haven't found yet information about the husband artist. And we owe a debt of gratitude to a past forum speaker, Ellie Shushan, and recent guest curator, William Rudolph, for bringing this treasure to our attention. This, this ormolu casket was likely made in 1850 or 1851, since it was third in the list of 12 objects.
Grammar in the official descriptive and illustrative catalog of the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London is described as Louis XIV workbox, chased, pierced, engraved, gilt in ormolu, mounted with ornaments and porphyry. The 14 stones that are in set have been identified as blood jasper, with one of the stones being banded jasper. The inscription reads, It reads, 35 Greek Street, Soho, Great Exhibition, 1851, Class 26, manufactured by S. Wertheimer, London. This lovely object is a generous gift from our board chairman, Mary Lou Christovich. The 1851 exhibition, whose site was Joseph Paxton's Crystal Palace, became a prototype for a succession of world's fairs held to celebrate industrial and economic Given that New Orleans has hosted two World's Fairs and one Pan-American Exposition, we feel that this casket or workbox is an excellent point of reference for the beginning of this type of event. This oil on canvas is by Jacques Guillaume Lucien Amans, who lived from 1801 to 1888. Graham Betcher uh, talked about Amans in his talk the other day. The artist was born in the Netherlands and educated in France. He arrived at Louisiana with Beauchamp in 1836. Both artists spent winters in New Orleans and painted the wealthy citizens of European heritage. Amans opened his studio in Royal Street in New Orleans in 1837 and continued to work seasonally in the city until around 1856. Unlike Beauchamp, Amans purchased a sugar plantation on Bayou Lafouche and retired to the comforts there some summers. Graham showed you the 1840 portrait of Andrew Jackson done from life while Jackson was in New Orleans. We believe that this portrait was also executed sometime around 1840. We found it through a researcher working for a gallery in Paris. And thanks again to the generosity of the Diana Hellas Henry Fund of the Hellas Foundation, the collection was able to purchase this fascinating portrait in memory of Charles Snyder, our esteemed president who passed away last year. It's easy to think that the portrait could have been painted in New Orleans because of the Creole subject, but French culture included many people of color in France and in the Caribbean. We know the French colony of Saint-Domingue, for instance, included as part of its society many cultured people of color. The white off-the-shoulder peasant blouse, brown skirt, and turban or pignon do, however, seem to indicate working class. The sitter's pose obscures details of the body and the androgynous features <coughs> leave the question of gender and of the matter. The initials ED in uppercase block letters appear woven into the neckline of the blouse and may indicate identity. Clearly a tour de force among Amon's known work. This painting needs to be matched with a scholar who will solve the mystery of the sitter's identity. This photograph album contains 40 views from the beginning of the 1860s until 1877 by New Orleans photographer Theodore Lilienthal. 
Each is approximately 11 by 14 inches. And I show this group here so you'll have a, a sense of the scale or the size of the, um, of the um, object. This fine large album is a promised gift of Mr. Fritz Grovein of Bremen, Germany. It was presented as a memoir of New Orleans to one of Mr. Grovein's ancestors who headed a cotton firm here during Reconstruction when in 1877 he returned home to Germany. The album is significant not only in its large-scale display of images of the city in the years after the Civil War, but in relationship to the city's cotton trade. It also speaks to us about New Orleans German immigrants and offers an expanded look at photography during this period. I just show you some of the marvelous images in the book. Jutray Barjon, a free person of color, was born in Saint-Domingue and came to New Orleans in 1813. He apprenticed with Jean Rousseau, also a free person of color, and opened his own shop in 1821. His son, Barjon Jr., Born in 1823, eventually ran the shop and made furniture as well. The stamp is inside the large-scale armor right out this door for you to see. Um, the interior is fitted with a belt of drawers, and the, the doors are um, mahogany veneer, and the side, the side panels are solid wood, and the, the um, secondary wood is cedar. And this important piece is a generous gift of Mr. and Mrs. Robert Patrick. Not as recent an acquisition as others, that Hatch presentation service is nonetheless one of the most spectacular. Consisting of a tray, coffee pot, two teapots, hot water pot, sugar, creamer, and waste bulk, the service was made in New Orleans by the firm of Turfloth and Kugler, both German immigrants. It was produced of coin silver for presentation to Francis Hanson Hatch, collector of customs. Pat Baco and Carrie Mackey have described it in their article for the collection quarterly as, quote, characterized by the most contemporary illustrative iconography of all known examples of New Orleans-made presentation silver, unquote. Each piece is decorated with different vignettes representing the prosperity of Louisiana due to, com to the commerce of the port. The two-handled tray features the United States Custom House in the center, a building which still stands near the foot of Canal Street and is a spectacular example of Egyptian revival architecture. And this is the photo you saw a minute ago from the, uh, from the album. Below is an inscription reading presented to F.A. Chatch, collector of the Port of New Orleans by his friends in the Custom House, May 1st, 1861. The flag on the left of the inscription. Oh, we're having trouble with the, the projector. It, it just jumped over to the side this morning, and we haven't had time to shut it down and start it back up. So I'm sorry you can't see absolutely everything. Um, the, um, the flag on the left is the one-star banner of the Republic of Louisiana, established January 26, 1861, when the state seceded. The flag on the right is the first national Confederate flag, which also flies over the custom 
on the drive. The service was presented before Louisiana had joined the Confederacy. This detail of one of the teapots shows a steamboat entering the Mississippi River. And, oh, it's mostly cut off, I'm sorry. Um, the this detail of the sugar bowl shows a train with palm tree palmetto plants and has two acorns at the terminus of its lid. Oranges, kumquats, sunflowers, pecans, and figs appear at the top of each of the pieces. Cotton bales, barrels, and other cargo are featured, as well as sailing ships at the levee. I'm very sad that I don't have a detail of the alligator to show you, because it's unlike the map that Jason showed us, where the alligator was situated in Minnesota. This one is right where he belongs. <laughs> this acquisition is another made possible by the Diana Hellas Henry Fund and the Lozot Society of the Historic Romans Collection. I hope you will see that these few items are just the tip of the iceberg awaiting scholars to study here at the collection. I urge you to become a member if you haven't already done so. Your support enables us to continue to make these and many other types of objects and collections available for research, exhibition, and enjoyment. And yes, Janine, we accept your challenge. Plans are in the works for a revised edition of Crescent City Silver. Thank you all.